And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strawn and Gary K. Wolf on the fortnightly Coot Excellent, excellent introduction as always. You can still breathe where you are. I have to check in. I feel like every couple of weeks now I have to find out if you're, are you still on fire or are the rest of them still on fire? No, enormous floods. Seriously. It's double. Biblical, isn't it? It is seriously biblical. There were terrible fires. Now there are terrible floods. There are places that had, what, 500 millimeters, I don't know if that means anything to you, of mm. rain in two days. Put that out all the fires like and then washed everything away. Yeah. Well, it sounds like what happens in the American Southeast. So we're, well, one of the questions that this raises, of course, and, uh, uh, is how do you write about uh, an apocalyptic event, which you pretty much are already living through at the moment. It's no longer science fiction. Where do you draw the line between speculation and uh, and realistic fiction? Um, I'll, give, I'll, I'll give you one example of um, somebody who I think has done this very well. Is our friend James Bradley, whose novel a few years ago, Clade, began with a fairly contemporary feel. It was a contemporary, more or less realistic novel. And at some point in, 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 in the middle of that novel, and the same thing happens with his new novel, Ghost Species, you realize that we've moved into realism, we've moved from realism into speculation and you can't really tell the difference anymore. Yeah. I think the first thing is you can't flinch. That's the first That's the thing. You know, you have to show what you're actually going to do. I mean, I've been thinking about this, uh, this a lot this week for a lot of reasons. How do you write apocalypse? How do you deal with climate change and all that kind of thing and i've seen quite a few books and even to some degree kim stanley robinson's 2312 did this Mm -hmm. right where you go and there was a terrible dark period where you know billions died and now we're coping with the aftermath right yeah and that has some element of hope because i think that when you write about the apocalypse as a real as a practical apocalypse you have to, you're morally obliged to be hopeful about it. You know, mm-hmm. How do you cope with it? Not how do you fall into despair and abandon everything, right? That's, that's the big question that you have to answer. And, um, I think what you have to do is you have to show the real cost of what's happening and then whether you can survive the apocalypse and come out the other side. Otherwise you're dealing with some kind of indulgent fantasy. I think that's true. And I think that uh, one way of seeing how speculative writers deal with this historically is to look at how other apocalypses have been dealt with. And, for example, uh, apocalyptic literature from, let's say, the mid-40s through probably well into the late 60s, uh, the apocalypse had to do with nuclear war. It had to do with with human – with a a different kind of human-caused climate change. And as a result, you had a lot of really grim novels about uh, people dying out, mainstream as well as, as genre novels. I mean, On the Beach was a best-selling novel in which the world basically ends. Uh, and interestingly enough, it ends in Australia. Um, but um, but then you also had these kind of vaguely, distantly hopeful novels like A Canticle for Leibowitz, where or, or stories that are set generations after nuclear uh, devastation. And some of them took the position of, well, we will be able to recreate uh, a civilization on another planet, we'll be able to rebuild, we'll discover science and technology. Um, there's a kind of hopeful uh, future in a novel like Lee Brackett's The Long Goodbye, for example, or in A Canticle for Leibowitz, where you get thousands of years after the nuclear holocaust, eventually we come back but then again, only to repeat the same nuclear mistakes we made the first time. So to some extent, I think this notion of fatalism, the notion that, okay, uh, that, that we're not going to avoid this. And there was a real sense in the, in, in the 50s we were not going to avoid nuclear doom. Now I think there's a sense we're not going to avoid environmental doom of some sort, and we have to figure out how do we come out the other side. And Stan Robinson's... New York 2312 is the best example of how you make a kind of livable society out of uh, a, an unavoidable disaster. Very much. I mean, I think the the bad metaphor I'd use for it by comparison is this, right? 
those books that you're talking about from the 50s, 60s, 70s that talked about mm. nuclear apocalypse, it all happened very quickly, um, obviously. Right. And now it's almost like what you're seeing is imagine that you're at that moment where you could look around and see that all of the nuclear devices had gone off, there are mushroom clouds everywhere, and you're just at that first moment where they're happening, but you're able to freeze time and try to do something about it. That's where we right. are now, right? Yeah. Because climate apocalypse is upon us, and certainly everybody in Australia is painfully aware of that fact. Uh, and I think you'd have to be disconnected from the world not not to be aware of that fact. Um, but it's not too late to make changes. So what well, do you do? And you know, because mm. we, you know, like we like you you need to do something. And there are things. And this is this is the thing again. I mean, I think. It's fascinating going from reading. I mean, to me, Stan Robinson is on a personal level, probably the most influential science fiction writer I've read in the last decade. I'm kind of shocked that some of the books that he wrote didn't get more recognition than they did. Mm-hmm. Because I think 2312 says, Hey, look, uh, terrible things can happen, but a wonderful life can, can, can happen afterwards. Mm-hmm. Then, Aurora says, stop with this bullshit about going to another planet. You have to live with the world we're in. And then New York 2140 says, it's still going to go bad, but you can still do something. Each of these books contain within them a utopian statement. And I, to me, it's been enormously influential, this idea that you got to stop talking about going to another planet. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Get on with this world. And it's what I expect more of from his book that's coming out in October. They only announced this week, the Ministry mm. for the Future. Uh, <coughs> having seen Aurora, I'm a little surprised. Maybe Aurora was supposed to uh, serve the same purpose, but I'm a little surprised that he hasn't taken on the idea of floating space colonies in orbit uh, because that's become uh, a, a popular idea even in in the movies by now. Uh, but but so, all that but, is is... And I mean, there's a whisker of it in 2312. All orbiting colonies in that's, space, Gary, is running away to another planet on a small scale. Well, I think that's exactly the point. Yeah, he's making is that you know these are short-term solutions. They're not really solutions at all. Uh, they're ways of, of fooling ourselves. And I think he's he's done a service um, to science fiction in questioning those ideas. I, there are other hard science fiction writers who disagree with him. Gregory Benford disagrees with his calculations and so forth. Oh, sure. But, but you know what? I think, I think Greg willfully, with all due respect to Gregory Benford, willfully missed the point. The point wasn't that Stan's um, calculations and everything else were fair and reasonable to get mm-hmm. the result that he wanted or not. It was to make the point that we have to deal with the planet that we're on. Exactly. Not the least because yep. how can you morally, how can, how can you as a human being embrace an option where you say, we can't take all seven billion of us along, but we'll take a few. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a fairly horrific position to take, that you're it's willing to throw pos- most of the human race into the toilet. Well, I think one of the, uh, one of the appeals of that sort of thing, uh, goes back to, goes back to 1933 probably. Uh, Edward, Edward Balmer and Philip Riley, Wiley wrote When Worlds Collide, which I happened to see part of on television. This is the early 30s. Yeah. And, and, and Philip Wiley was an important, influential writer in all kinds of ways. His gladiator later, you know, influenced Superman and so forth. But the idea of When Worlds Collide is they're, they're like spaceships being built all over the world, each of which we are told in the movie will carry 40 people. <laughs> We're not talking 40. about saving several hundred thousand people. We're talking about, Getting a hunt, and this is only going to work because this other planet is about to collide with it, and another planet, which is right next door to that one, is habitable and nice. How, so how convenient. Yeah, uh, convenient, yeah. Okay, this is this is 1930s journalist version. I get it. Of yeah, I know, I know. But nevertheless, uh, the the way the fantasy works is that well, if there are 40 or 50 people left, I must be one of them <laughs> because it's, it's it's always about me. So, yes, it is. You, you, you didn't see uh, a lot. Actually, it's been a long time since I've read that novel. But in the movie, you get no sense at all uh, of the vast majority of people who are just basically getting creamed at the end of it. 
And in those books, so I think, in other know, words, I think the fantasy, the fantasy, which has to do with America, with, with, with world politics these days, sure, too, yeah. is that, yeah, these horrible things will happen, but they won't happen to me. Um, Except they're going to, aren't they, Gary? Well, the thing is, uh, watching Australia burn this past um, uh, winter or summer for you uh, has been very interesting because we see incredibly apocalyptic, horrible images, needless to say, on American TV, it's knitting mittens for koalas that that really catches people's hearts nobody is thinking that's that's us in a couple of years people are thinking this is a really horrible thing and the point that i think comes across in um a lot of apocalyptic literature is or what we're now calling slow apocalyptic literature is that unless you personally experience something apocalyptic it's not real it's not really happening to you there's a certain american political political stance right now that's entirely based on the idea if it's not happening to you at this moment it's not real in fact if it's really cold outside global warming is probably a hoax and i hear that from people my age uh i hear it from my president (laughs) so 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 there is a sense that you have to actually be a victim and even then you find ways of rationalizing it I think what you also get is this idea that I mean, this sort of cascading sort of thing of horror where it's like, well, first of all, if it's brown people, I don't have to pay attention to it. Well, yeah, exactly. And then it's if it's distant white people, I don't really have to pay attention to it. And then if it's poor people, I don't have to pay attention to yeah. it and so on and so on, which is incredibly toxic. But the way the climate is going to come apart, if it continues to, and if we don't in, in, intervene and do what we can to prevent that is it will not discriminate and one of the other toxic fantasies is that the wealthy are going to be able to hide themselves away in enclaves and protect mm-hmm. themselves from this mm-hmm. because it ignores the fact that those enclaves sit upon a system that has to work and it's also ignoring the uh, enormous amount of energy that's working against those enclaves. One of the novels, the J.G. Ballard's first novel, which he disowned, which he hated, which he didn't want reprinted everywhere, anywhere. And it's not very good as a novel, but it it it, it, it applies to what we're talking about right now. It's called The Wind from Nowhere. Uh, there, it's, it's an environmental disaster novel where this wind simply picks up around the world and gets faster and it gets more and more. Uh, destructive four and five hundred mile an hour winds around the world and there's one multi-billionaire who builds this kind of pyramidal like stronghold and it's literally a uh, a man against nature parable in the old 19th century sense of that and of course it doesn't work of course you know eventually nature is going to get you and he says that in in very unsophisticated and very direct terms it's almost a comic book of a novel which yeah. is why he uh disowned it i think but it's still as powerful as any of his other uh environmental catastrophe novels he, you know he did the drought he did the drowned world he did the crystal world and so forth and so on all of those uh are based on the assumption that you are not going to win you're mm. not going to win against nature um, let me ask you this question because i mean it's not something that i've thought about and you might have but do you think that the way science fiction looks at apocalypse itself has changed in the last 30 years that its role in story to some degree or in the kind of stories we tell has mm. changed because I feel like when I think about it back in the day, it was a ma- matter of expression of fear and moral lesson, right? And mm. now it feels like it's not that it's the, the moral lesson feels irrelevant, uh, frankly. Uh, and it's much more about survival and acceptance of the world around us and trying to find some kind of hope in it. It feels like it's a different thing. And that that doesn't mean matter whether it's a mm. Nora Jemison backgrounded apocalypse, whether it's a Stan Robinson foregrounded apocalypse, whether it's a Paolo Bacigalupi apocalypse or whatever else. You know, I just feel like it's a different kind of a thing. The Drowned World was for all that is, is a terrific book. Mm. It feels like a thought exercise. It's a, it's a, it's like what he would call a psychic archaeology exercise. In other words, he wasn't really, in any of his novels, uh, concerned with the mechanics of how this might happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was concerned with how human consciousness is can be transformed by by a change in the environment. And Ballard was never a characteristic writer of disaster fiction. 
Um, I mean, he, he had an idea that what disaster fiction could do was uh, a phrase he used was to remake zero, to just take civilization back to the baseline and start from there. And I think traditionally the way science fiction handled apocalypse was uh, – or, or wastelands in general – was it was it, it creates a new heroic landscape. In other words, it levels the playing field. The rich and powerful aren't rich and powerful anymore. The natural aristocracy, the people who are good with swords and guns and uh, See, and whatever. What that makes that feel like to me when I hear you is, mm-hmm. it used to be that the role of apocalypse was almost the same role of making parents disappear in YA fiction to allow an adventure to unfold. Exactly, or the way of the, the, the way that the uh, American Western novel used to unfold. You move out into a lawless territory, uh, and whoever is the most ingenious and the most powerful and the most uh, clever is the one who survives. In other words, you've got a frontier environment reinvented after the apocalypse. And to uh, reinforce what you were saying earlier, I don't think we're doing that anymore. No, I don't think, I don't think there's, there's nothing heroic left about apocalyptic fiction. Well, let me ask you this. How, how do, would you think, and I haven't looked at it in a long time, so you may not be, may have either. How do you think a book like The Postman, the David Brin post-apocalyptic novel, holds up in the world today? I don't think it holds up particularly well at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it is a kind of fantasy of um, reconstruction. Yeah. You know, the idea that, that this one character, this one iconic character, <laughs> will somehow... Wasn't wasn't that played by Kevin Costner yeah. in the movie? Am I wrong? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So Kevin Costner playing the same role Kevin Costner always plays is somehow such an image of stability that there is hope that we will reconstruct the civilization from the from the ashes of the old one. Uh, now the model is more like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, where if you can if you can keep yourself from getting roasted and eaten, you're doing about as well as you can expect. Um, See, I think, I think what I see when I read, again, to come back to the same writer again and again, I mean, which I sh- mm. shouldn't for the podcast, but still, uh, Stan Robinson, it's, it's standing that step back from, in the story, from the sta- stage you're talking about, where you're going, yeah, apocalypse is like, and the, the most prophetic title of the last 50 years is apocalypse now, surely. You know, apocalypse mm. is here happening and we can mitigate it and change it not into some Pollyanna future of everybody living on super slick future yachts, right. all that kind of crap, but in, into something livable and survivable and still kind of sort of like the world we're in enough a bit. Well, I think that's, that's the idea I think behind something like the postman is that there's a symbol of the old world which becomes the kernel of the new world. But the new world is going to look pretty much like the old world. Well, the big difference with the postman, though, is that whatever the apocalypse is in the postman, nuclear or whatever else, right, Mm. it's the damage happens somewhere over there, right? It's not the whole world. I mean, the problem with climate change is the whole world is fucked. It's not a little bit here, a little bit there. So when you watch the postman, my recollection of the movie is it's just winter a lot. Um. Could be. I never uh, to, to confess. I never finished watching the movie, and now that I think of it, I never finished watching Waterworld either, which was another post-apocalyptic yeah. story that d- d- didn't make a lot of sense. But they 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 both used the apocalypse to create a heroic arena for kind of classic mythical action, and I th- I think we've moved beyond that. I don't think anybody really believes in that anymore. I don't think anybody is. Looking forward to, uh, to, to, to recreating a, a kind of, uh, wild west. The, 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 there, there's, there's almost a parody of that, for example, in Paolo Bacigalupi's, uh, young adult trilogy. Mm-hmm. The Drowned Cities and the, uh, the, the, the tool of war and, and the, the first one. Uh, because it's, it's, yeah, it's clear that some of the characters feel that this is happening. Yeah. That there are characters who think, okay, the young characters, immature characters, who think we can basically run the world as gangs now, and it turns out no, they can't. Nobody yeah. is going to run the world in the future. There's there's no chance for heroic action. All there is a chance for is survival. It's, it may be one of the grimmest trilogies of young adult novels I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, and the thing is, I don't, as far as I can tell, Paolo never got a lot of pushback from from young adults saying, "No, it's not. We'll do better than this." They they seem to accept the notion that this may be a world they're living in. Yeah. Hmm. 
who do you think is embracing this well, you know, this sort of stuff well in um, the modern group of, of writers? Because obviously, I mean, Stan, Stan is sort of almost the tail end of the new wave. He goes back so far. He goes back to the late 70s, I think, is the beginning of his career. So, Well, I think Stan is looking for ways to be optimistic given the inevitable. And and I think the big shift I've seen in uh, in, in this kind of fiction, and not just apocalyptic fiction, but but almost any fiction set uh, 200 years from now is going to have a climate catastrophe in the background. It may not be what the novel is about, but yeah. it's there. It's just one of the things you assume. Uh, you, you you read about the Florida archipelago. You read about uh, well, too bad about you know San Diego and Long Beach, but they were nice when they were here. So that's just a given. Um, so who's addressing this as something other than uh, than what Kim Stanley Robinson is doing? Interesting question. I mean, there are there are kind of visionary uh, takes on it. There are things like Blackfish City, where the uh, idea that maybe new yeah. cities can be built in in different kinds of environments. There's some of that in um, Annalee Newitz's novel, uh, first novel. Um, so, but 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 that involves building completely new infrastructures somewhere else. In other words, what you see in something like Blackfish City, a novel I admire a lot, is a version of giving up on our world and creating a new world in the Arctic, which yeah. is just this side of saying, okay, we can move to a space colony. I, I guess. I mean, I, I feel like, again, it's one of those cases I mean, where she's trying to do a particular thing and she needed a setting t- for it to play out. and. Mm. did it very effectively I like the book a lot but still you know I, I take your point I, I guess that's what I'm thinking because I'm uh, as you know Gary as you know mm. science fiction is a field that has more awards than it has days of the week oh of course and so this week as you know I think five sets of awards or four four or five sets of awards were all were all announced I know some of which I five didn't even know were there well, I knew all of these, I think, yeah. There were five different sets. I mean, one's not pure science fiction, but within two days this week, five different shortlists dropped, which uh-huh. I thought was fairly amazing. There's the inaugural Ray Bradbury Award, which is part of the LA Times uh, book, book Awards. Well, okay, that's a new one. There's yeah. the Spectrum Awards, the Stokers, the Carnegie uh, Award, uh, Award, and the Nebulas, which were often commented upon in this parish. Right. Well, the the ones that get the most uh, attention of this group, of course, are the most famous. Well, the the Nebula Awards probably get the most attention. The Stoker Awards, um, it seems to me that's a narrower community. I mean, to be honest, when I look at the Stoker Awards, there are some 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 short fiction. I, I it, it it tends to be full of things I haven't read. I realize when I look at the Stoker Awards ballot that I must be out of touch with horror fiction. Oh, um, I've never been in touch with horror fiction. I wouldn't pretend to be. I, um, I, I am disappointed I didn't read Victor Laval's long novelette from Weird Tales, but um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't. I, I don't read horror, but uh, congratulations to everybody who was nominated. I mean, mm-hmm. we have a couple of friends. I mean, if you go to locusmag.com listeners and look up the 2019 Stoker Awards ballot, you will see the many fine novels and pieces of short fiction that have been nominated. I think there are 15 novels and 20 and 10 short stories. And I would probably give a quick shout out to friends of the podcast, Ted Chang, who's up for his collection, Exhalation. Not terribly surprising, uh-huh. but not really horror. It's not um, what I'd consider horror, but it's it's it's. I think one of the rules for 2020 is that if there's any award anywhere, National League's most valuable player, you nominate Ted Chang for it because it just it just is done. True, true, true. Though I though, though I have thoughts, um, and then Ellen Datlow, who's up for Echoes, yeah, her course. anthology, which which is actually a terrific book, huge, big, sprawling book of ghost stories with some fabulous work in it, one of the best anthologies of the year. Uh, Victor Laval, and yeah, everybody else. Congratulations. Go look it up. I'm not going to read through the whole list. No. Just as we're not going to read through the Spectrum Award list, though personally I would shout out to Australian illustrator Ravina Kai, who won the Uh World Fantasy last year and is nominated a couple of times. And she's also up for the Greenaway Medal, which is a Best Picture Book Award. Uh Uh-huh. 
up against another Australian uh, who you would have heard of, Sean Tan. Of course. For his spectacular Tales from the Inner City. Where are all these great Australian illustrators coming from? Know. This is something uh, I've not thought about at all. I mean, there's Kathleen uh, Jennings. Jennings, yeah. yeah. And Nick Stathopoulos and a bunch of other people. There's some great people. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, the LA T- Times added science fiction, fantasy, and speculative fiction to the LA Times Book Prizes, and they mm. announced five nominees. Everybody sit down, you'll be shocked. Exhalation by Ted Chiang. Uh-huh. This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal Al-Motar and Max Gladstone. Song for the Unraveling of the of the World by Brian Evanson, who's a friend of yours. Mm-hmm. Marlon James's Black Leopard Red Wolf. And I would make as an aside, and if I ever do show notes properly, I would link to this. Marlon James just started a fabulous podcast, which Wonderful. I strongly recommend to you. Um, it's called Marlon and Jake Read Dead People. Good. Sounds good title. And it's a sensible thing where Marlon James and his editor, who edited Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and uh, his, his previous novel, um, talk about books written by dead people because live people get offended, which is fair. Fair enough. And then the the remaining nominee for the uh, Ray Bradbury Prize is The Old Drift by Namwali Serpol, which is not a book I know, I have to admit. Uh, that's also up for their... Uh, Arthur Sidden- Sidenbaum Award for First Fiction. I read a good chunk of that, and it's a, it's a it's a beautifully written book. It's one of these novels that uh, uh, unclassifiable novels that includes things, I suppose, like Cloud Atlas that takes place over generations uh, of a family in I forgot, it Tanzania. Um, at any rate, it, it it moves into the future. It's uh, it's something that one of those novels where you have to wonder how much of this is. Fantasy is there? If, if, does does enough fantasy make it a fantasy novel? Despite the fact that there's enough science fiction to make it a science fiction novel, I don't know. Oh, part of know. this novel, part of the novel is narrated by a swarm of mosquitoes. Uh, there's a woman whose hair magically grows faster than anything in the world. There are clearly magical figures in it, uh, and it's several generations of, 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 of in a family. And it's uh, I did not get a chance to finish it because it went on for a while. But what I read was just gorgeously written. Fantastic. And I'm looking forward to finding time to finishing that. So I'm glad that made the ballot. Well, the science fiction and fantasy writers of America, known as SFWA, or SFWA with one F, which is not confusing Mm -hmm. at all people, announced their thing. Are we going to go through the whole thing, or what are we going to do? Let's go through the whole thing. Let's might as well mention them. Yeah, because there are some things on it. Actually, I've read more of the nominees this year than usual. I've read read an awful lot of them. So, okay. The nominees for novel are Mark of Cain by Charles E. Gannon, The Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow, A Memory Called Empire by Arcady Martin, Gods of Jade and Shadow by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir, and A Song for a New Day by Sarah Pinsker placing four of the six novels as debuts. Which is very impressive. And uh, one of the six novels, I guess, by a male writer. The thing that strikes me about this list is there's a, is, is the variety of, 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 um, of novels on it. No novel on it is very much like any of the others. I, to be honest, I've not, I don't know Mark of Cain. I've mm-hmm. not read that. So I can't talk about that. It's a Bane book. But you know, the Ten Thousand Doors of January is a classic literary fantasy. It's full of literary illusions. It's a celebration of storytelling. Uh, Gideon the Ninth, which has already won, already been announced to win the Crawford Award for this year, is is very snarky and uh, and and funny and dark and uh, apocalyptic in its own way. Uh, so it's 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 different in tone. The Gods of Jade, Jade and Shadow, I liked because I saw that almost as a comic novel involving yep. a really angry god, uh, and it's a road novel, and it's delightful. It's it's you know it's one of those settings where I suppose if you're not Mexican, you never would have thought about what Jazz Aids Mexico would have been like, and she makes it really come alive. Um, and Song for a New Day is um, one of the few novels that you will see on these things that deal with performance with the art of performance with musical performance in a way written from the inside out because sarah is a performer herself and i've always been i've always had a soft spot i'm not talking about how i could vote because i can't vote 
But I've always had an interest in science fiction novels that deal with the arts in any form because there are surprisingly few of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I should say, Mark of Cain we should arguably be aware of. It's the mm-hmm. fifth book in the Cain Rawdon series mm-hmm. and is the fourth to be nominated for Best Novel at the Nebula Awards. That's an important over oversight on my part. I am you know, readily... So, you know, uh, and it, it, it appears to be a kind of swashbuckling kind of space opera from what I can tell. Mm. Uh, and a memory called Empire? Is a really, really smart, beautifully written space opera. Yeah. First in a series, and, uh, and I think of, of these, in fact, two of them are, are series starters because tenth, uh, because Memory Called Empire kicks off a series as does Gideon yeah. the Ninth because Harrow the Ninth is due out in a couple of months. Right. So, um, but it's but I think it's a strong list partly because it's not all the same thing. You're right. Uh, there's a classic space opera on it. Gideon the Ninth has some allusion to space opera, but basically it's a kind of supernatural, mythological, cosmic, epic sort of thingy. It's um, a punk gothic lesbian fantasy. Yeah, fine. Uh, and, and and Song for a New Day is a is, is a is a you can read it as a dystopian novel, except it's about the redeeming power of art, which is one of the things that uh, I, I think is worth talking about. Uh, so so I guess you could you could make the argument that uh, the Alex E. Harrell novel, The Ten Thousand Doors of January, and the Sarah Pinsker novel are both in their own ways celebration of the arts. One storytelling, sure, sure. one music, and that's. I mean, on a personal level, you have one of my very, very favorite books of the year, The Ten Thousand Doors of January. Uh-huh. Uh, and you have a book I really enjoyed, which is one of the hippest, coolest books of the year, which is Gideon the Ninth. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a good list. You could sit there and, uh, look at, uh, the, you know, our recommended reading list from Locus in February. And most of these books appear, I think five of the six appear on that list. Yeah. And I'm, you know, there's a few books I'm vaguely disappointed aren't there because they're favorites of mine for the year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's always going to be the case. You know, this is the the result of voting in the NSFWA. And, you know, it's a strong list. Let us move on to novella right. in this golden okay. age of era of novellas. And we'll set aside, you know, the few things which I wish were there that aren't there. And mm-hmm. I will tell you that the nominees are Anxiety is the Dizziness of Freedom by Ted Chang. The Haunting of Tramcar 15 by T. Jelly, P. Jelly Clark. This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal Olmotar and Max Gladstone. Her Silhouette Drawn in Water by Vilar Kaftan. The Deep by Rivers Solomon with David Diggs, William Hudson and Jonathan Snipes. And Catfish Lullaby by A.C. Wise who works on our recommended reading list. And it's terrific. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And Strong List. Yes, there are others that I love, but I have to say, uh, Anxiety is the Disney's of Freedom is a very strong Chang story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love The Haunting of Tramcar 15. Clark is a terrific writer and it's a strong story. Uh, the Elmotar and Gladstone is without doubt the hippest, most loved, coolest novella out there. Mm-hmm. And is probably, is, I'm going to say it's going to win this award. It's going to win the Hugo Award. I think it probably will. It probably won't win the World Fantasy because I don't think you can stretch it to fit, but it'll probably win the Hugo and the Nebula is my guess. Um, the Vilar Kaftan is fabulous. River Solomon is fantastic. I'm actually bitterly disappointed not to see her novelette this year that came out also on this list somewhere because I think mm-hmm. it's fan- a fabulous story. But this is great and was birthed in at the Finland Worldcon. And um, I don't know what uh, Nava Wolf was instrumental in bringing this book into being. Uh, in I fact, know. I believe. As a shout out to her as an editor, if you're trying to remember her as, uh, for best editor short form, I guess. Uh, oh. She's the editor, uh, the yeah. commissioning editor and a hands-on editor for This Is How You Lose the Time War and The Deep. So hats off to her and to, to all of them. And once again, I'd say that the diversity, by which I don't simply mean the diversity in terms of who the authors are, but the diversity in topics here uh, is, is they're all over the map. There's, yeah. there's no longer one kind of science fiction. As a matter of fact, uh, I would argue that probably this who this is how you lose the time war, which is by it's an epistolary romance about time travel, but it's probably the most conventional science fiction story here in, in a way. Well, maybe maybe the Ted Chang story is, but Ted Chang stories are always 
Ted Chang stories. That is true. That is Ted Chang version of science fiction. <laughs> okay. Novelette, that, that funny, uh, sort of thing that sits in between mm. seven and a half thousand and seventeen and a half thousand words. The nominees are A Strange Uncertain Light by G.V. Anderson, the sole nominee for a print magazine, I believe. For mm-hmm. He Can Creep by Siobhan Carroll. His Footsteps, His Footsteps Through Darkness and Light by Mimi Mondal. The Blur in the Corner of Your Eye by Sarah Pinsker. Carpe Glitter by Cat Rambo, and The Archronology of Love by Carolyn M. Joachim, or Joachim, I guess Joachim. So, strong list, I have to tell you that The Archronology of Love is in my year's best, and I love the story, it's fabulous. Um, Mm -hmm. The Blur in the Corner of Your Eye and For He Can Creep would have been, but the fact that they're not science fiction, and I can only collect science fiction. Ah. They're really strong stories. Uh, A good strong story that's showing in this category from Tor.com. Uh, and from Uncanny, who's done well across the ballot, you know. Mm-hmm. No, it's a it's, it's it's a strong list. There are people on it. I'm very glad to see, but I can't claim to have read any of these at this point. Yep. For short story, "Give the Family My Love" by A.T. Greenblatt, "The Dead in Their Uncontrollable Power" by Karen Osborne, and now "His Lordship is Laughing" by Shiv Ramdas. Ten excerpts from an annotated bibliography on the cannibal women of Ratnabar Island by Nibadita Sen, A Catalogue of Storms by Fran Wilde, and How the Trick is Done by A.C. Wise. Her second nomination on this ballot, and very interesting story, another one from Uncanny, I think, three mm-hmm. of the stories in this category from Uncanny. Um, also, a shout-out to friend of the podcast and all-around wonderful person, Fran Wilde, who's up in short story. So some interesting Excellent. ones. I would have picked really different ones, but I mostly read science fiction this year, so... Well, that's the other thing that's interesting, uh, and, and I don't know if anybody has done this. I'm sure somebody has. To go back 10 or 15 years, when science fiction was much more of a um, qualifier for yeah. the nebulas than it is now. I mean, the, the, I don't know what year they changed the name to S, to science fiction and fantasy writers in yeah. America. But even for a few years after that, it was dominated by science fiction. No longer the case, which I think is a healthy thing. I mean, I don't think that worrying about classifying these stories into genres is even very useful anymore except in a case like yours where you have to stick to science fiction yeah so Um, moving on to where are we now well i'm going to be terrible about this i'm just going to say people Uh were nominated for game writing and for the ray bradbury award Uh and you can go look them up right the reason i'm doing that is because i feel like they're kind of peripheral to our podcast gary and then we come to the meaning that you and i know nothing about them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then there's the Andre Norton Award, where yes. Carlos Hernandez is up for Sal and Gabby Break the Universe. That's one of the Rick Ro- Ro- Reardon books that's come out. Naomi mm-hmm. Kr- Kritzer for Catfishing on Catnet. Yunha Lee for Dragon Pearl. Henry Lien for Peace Brat Champi- Chen Battle of Champions. Greg Van Eekhout for Cog. And Fran Wilde for Riverland. So Fran is on twice. Yay, yeah. Fran. So it's a, a, a I, strong and interesting list, and I know you re- you read uh, the Critcher book, didn't you? And liked it. I thought I thought the catfishing on Catnet was a very clever use of of, of young adult technology. By which I mean it's it, it, it deals with an artificial intelligence getting involved in the lives of of, 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 of teenagers who see themselves as misfits. Um, and I one of the things is kind of a hobby of mine is keeping keeping track of how technology is represented in fiction from the point of view of millennials, people who millennials, what do they call people who were born in the year 2000 now who are uh, uh, people? I don't know. People, I don't people, people who are people. Un- teenagers, whatever. The point is, <laughs> was well, he pretty much teenagers? Yeah, anyway, yeah. The point is, well, you've, you, 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 you've got teenagers. You can talk to about this. Uh, I have to, but my point is, uh, it seemed to me that Naomi Kritzer captured the way, the attitude of young people toward the use of technology. She was not starstruck by the idea that there are AIs out there interviewing, that people take false identities in, in, in groups and so forth and so on. And it struck me as, as being a very kind of hip young adult novel, considering the fact that I have no idea what a hip young adult is these days. <laughs> and we should say that, first of all, congratulations to Every nominee, we wish you all good luck. Uh, voting ends on the 31st of March, 
and the mm-hmm. awards will be presented at the 55th annual Nebula Banquet uh, in on May 30th, 2020 in California, in uh, Los, Los Angeles, Angeles, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, so it'll be go, an interesting good things. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, one thing I, I I did want to say one thing about um, the Ray Bradbury Award, partly because uh, a lot of favorite things are on it, but it's it's always odd to me in which you have enormous over-budget epic movies of Venture's Endgame coming up against single episodes of a miniseries. And it strikes me that that's more or less the equivalent of taking a short story against an epic novel or a, or a trilogy. Uh, but I guess that's the way the award works. I don't have any problem with yeah, I mean, uh, okay. any of the nominees. So the, the nominees, since you then lay it and we'll only now ignore the oh, game. Yeah. Well, in fact, okay, you brought us back. So we can. The nominees okay. for game writing were Outer, Outer Wilds by Kelsey Beecham, The Outer Worlds by Leonard Boyarski, Megan Starks, Kate Dollarhide, and Chris Letois, The Magician's Workshop by Kate Hartfield, Disco Elysium by Robert Kurvitz, and Fate Accessibility Toolkit by Elsa Shunison Henry, right? Who mm. won the Hugo last year, you may recall. Did Elsa? Uh, won the Hugo. Um, did she? She okay. did as part of, she was the editor on, or co-editor on the, on Canny Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction Issue. And Kate Hartfield was a finalist for the Crawford Award last year, but I can't remember the title of her novel offhand. Uh, um, Alice, oh gosh, I've gone blank on that. Uh, that's terrible. Everybody will now mock us. Okay. I know the books, but uh, what I was going to say, while you're doing that, the Ray Bradbury Award nominees were <sighs> the end of the 22 movie cycle. It was Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel, a single episode of Good Omens called Hard Times, a single episode of The Mandalorian called We Totally Indulged Ourselves and, and, and Wrote the Child. Uh, Russian Dolls, The Way Out, and Watchmen's A God Walks Into a Bar. Kate Hartfield's Alice Payne Arrives was her first novel. Yes, and then she, well, and armed, in her, armed in Her Fashion was yeah. uh, the finalist for the Crawford Award. Yeah, so anyway, um, what, there you go. That, that's well, the nebs. Yeah, that's that, that's what the nebs are. Um, are there any other awards we should do? Did you have any thoughts about the Ray Bradbury Award? You know, honestly, I struggle. First of all, I'm, I'm okay. I'm surprised not to see the expanse on there. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, season four came out just at the end of December and was spectacular. My, my favorite piece of science fiction television of the year. I actually thought that Good Omens would be nominated as a piece rather than as an episode. As an episode, yeah. Because really, Good, Good Omens does meet. I mean, it's on my best dramatic long form ballot for the Hugos. Mm-hmm. You know, because it really is a single piece. Um, so yeah. Other than that, no. I mean, uh, it is what it is. I don't, I don't pay I mean, that close attention. Right. I, I, I like I, to keep I, my, I my, my 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 drama unthought about. It's probably worth uh, mentioning that this sort of thing. I suspect it gets more votes than any other single category because everybody knows everything on it. But I think it also highlights a general issue with Nebula ballots and Hugo ballots and everything, and that is that. None of these things, with the possible exceptions of Avengers and Endgame and Captain Marvel in more or less the same world, none of these things are trying to do the same thing at all. No. These are are not works of art which in any sane world you would say are in competition with one another. Other than for attention, but yeah. Well, for attention, yeah. I mean, essentially what you get down to is um, a kind of award that the the, the most – um, I don't know. In some ways, the most egregious awards we get here in the States, I assume they're broadcast nationwide, are the People's Choice Awards. And I, I watch them sometimes because I don't know why, because I'm drunk, because they're appalling. <laughs> but the awards are always not for best or, or, or most accomplished. It, the awards are for favorite yeah, which is, which is honest. Series, favorite star. And to some extent, all awards come down to favorites. Um, yes, that's very true. I, I would have to agree with you. Um, and that's what it will be when, you know, when, when the Hugos come out. That's what the Locust Awards allow for. You know, mm-hmm. you vote for what you love. And it's going to be interesting to see what, what the Hugo ballot looks like when it comes out in a month or two. Do you think it'll be substantially different from the uh, Nebula ballot? It's always a bit different. I mean, there's a core group I think will be there. Yeah, there's a few yeah. titles I will be shocked. I mean, genuinely shocked if they're not on there. 
if Gideon the Ninth isn't there, if this is how you lose the Time War isn't there, I will be deeply taken aback. Right. Um, which doesn't mean I have any inside knowledge of any kind. It's just obvious, you know, with the buzz around and everything else. It would be interesting to go back and look at uh, possibly our own podcast from years ago at this point to see if the the stories and books and novels and novellas that were getting a lot of buzz at the time we were talking about them are still getting that buzz today. Mm. I mean, this is an obvious question, and we, sh- we really shouldn't get into it about this year's nominees. But one of the questions you have to ask yourself, and you were asking me this before the podcast, is that, which of these really, really buzzy works are still going to have buzz five or ten years from now? Um, well, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, if we separate ourselves from the current batch for a moment, and there's a good reason to. I mean, uh, yeah. first of all, I mean, these books have, you know, they've stood the test of time since sort of last July when they came out, right? Yeah. And in complete something. fairness to them, they couldn't do any more. Uh, but if you were to pull up, let's let's look at the nebulas. It's 2020. Mm. Let's covering well 2019. Let's go back to 99, right? Did these 20 years. so 20 years ago? Did these buzzy books get attention and stay retain attention? Okay, what were assuming they, they were buzzy because you know, Forever War by Joe Haldeman, Death of the Man- oh, Necromancer by Martha Wells. What's her what? Yeah, it was. Don't interrupt when I'm reading the list. Let me read the list, okay, then you can do it. Oh, we're so squabbly. How, far, how Few Remain by Harry Turtledove, The Last Hawk by Catherine Asaro, Moonfall by Jack McDevitt, and To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis. Now, I'd have to pull out a full list of things to see what else is buzzy, but certainly half of those certainly remain in print. To Say now, Nothing of said, the Dog... You said Forever War, you must have meant Forever Peace. Forever Peace, sorry, Forever Peace. Certainly, yeah, okay. uh, and Forever Peace is still read and in print. Uh, I would mm-hmm. argue that, you know, that buzziness is still there. Um, now, I suppose if you can compare it to the Hugo of that year, which would give you, again, an idea of also kind of buzziness, if you like, mm. you'd have to say nothing of the dog, Children of God by Mar- Mary Doria Russell, who interestingly kind of has disappeared from the world, mm-hmm. Darwinia by Robert Charles Wilson, which was popular at the time and has also kind of disappeared from the world, Distraction right. by Bruce Sterling, who... Well, he got distracted and went off and did something else. And Factoring Humanity by Robert Sawyer. So the Willis has certainly stayed buzzy, I think. Well, not buzzy. Mm, has, has become entrenched. It's like, you the go back will, to 1985. The, the, you go back to 1985. The Willis readership alone keeps a novel like that alive. There are people always discovering Connie and going back and yeah. discovering her. But when you go back novels. to 85, right, the buzziest writer mm. in the world was Scott Card. Now, whatever uh. you think about what happened in his in the intervening period up till today... Uh, and whatever you think of him and everything else, setting that aside for a second, those core works from the 85 to 90 period kind of remain in print and continue to have impact, you know? Right. I think that's true. And I think that uh, when you go back and look at these things and say, okay, there are some novels, which I remember uh, reading at the time and enjoying at the time. I remember reading the Jack McDevitt novel, for example. Um, and And yet, it's unfair to look at these things and ask how many of them are really classics because, to some extent, all the Nebula Awards or the Hugo Awards or the World Fantasy Awards, for that matter, do is give you a sense of what people thought their field was about. It's a snapshot of a given year. Yeah. And look, and Um, if if you only go back 10 years, like all the books, those books are still being read and to some degree talked mm -hmm. about, you know. So, uh, do I think that this group of, well, to limit ourselves to you know, novel nominees, will continue to have impact? Probably. Um, I think that we're going to hear from a number of these writers for another decade or two. It really depends what they come, right. what, what happens in their careers next. I mean, Alex Harrow has been writing a new novel. Arcadia Martin has the sequel to Memory Called Empire coming out. Mm. Sylvia Moreno Garcia has uh, two or three novels out this year, I think. Jesus, Mexican yeah, right. Gothic and the YA, I think you're talking about. And a Mexican noir novel, I think. Tamsin Muir has Harrow the Ninth. I'm sh- I know Sarah Pinsker has another book due that I don't know what it is yet. And there's probably book seven of the Mark of Cain series from Charles Gannon. So, I mean, you know, stuff, stuff's happening. Right. And I, I, I think it's, it's encouraging because if you go back, that's, I guess that's the other way of looking at these, uh, names and titles from 10 or 15 or 20 years ago uh, and that is 
how many of them how many of the names are recognizable as major writers today even though what they might have been nominated for 15 years ago isn't uh, hasn't become a classic work in other words you you tend to award people at the beginnings of their careers and i think one of the things it would be interesting to do this survey if some obsessive graduate student wanted to do the numbers my sense is that nominees for nebula awards have more or less grown younger over the years over this that decade I, yes over like, the decade i think i think you have people in their 20s and early 30s getting more nominations than they would have gotten 20 years ago uh i think people are okay. making more dramatic debuts i think um and i i don't honestly know how old all these people are um but the fact that so many of them are relatively new writers. Well, I'm, I'm, do, I'm, doing, a, I'm doing a quick run, okay? Okay. Uh, off the top of my head, 2019, average age of uh, novel nominees under 40. Uh, tw- 2009, average age, yeah, probably 40, with one Cory Doctorow being younger. Roll back to 99, average age... 40 to 50 probably at that point roll Mm. it back to 89 yeah i don't know i mean the same because in 89 you know i mean it's the the nominees were gene wolf scott card bill gibson greg benford george turner lewis shiner Mm -hmm. and lois roster bujold at those stages they were probably yes it's 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 writers and they're actually truthfully it's right they may be a bit younger but not a lot younger i don't think usually the younger writers for obvious reasons are um in short fiction but what mm-hmm. I would suggest is the more interesting point is, is this an unusual batch of first novelists? Well, OK, I was going to say something similar to that, not just looking in terms of age, but in terms of the stage in their career. Because when you mention people like uh, you mentioned people like, I don't know, Gene Wolfe or, or, or Nancy Kress or uh, Gregory Benford, uh, people who had who were getting nominated 20 and 30 years into their career in some cases. Now we're getting people who are getting nominated, sometimes with the first novel, sometimes with the second novel, um, who are making a much more uh, lasting impression earlier in their careers yeah. than than many people used to. I think that's true. <sighs> but we're getting towards the end of our hour, right? We've got about six, seven minutes mm-hmm. to go, and we're going to keep to it because I'm going off to my whiskey tasting Going to see our friend Neil Gaiman tomorrow. He's doing a talk. He's in town. Excellent. His whole family's in town, I believe. Uh, Amanda Palmer's performing tonight in a promised mm-hmm. four-hour extravaganza of of entertainment. And then Neil tomorrow afternoon. So we're going to go and see uh, see him on stage. So that would be good. Um, I will ask you quickly: What have you been reading of interest in the past week or so, Gary? Um. Well, I, you probably know. Maybe you haven't even opened the file yet. I sent in my locus column for the March. No, am I right? The what? What month is this? This is February. I sent in the April column. I'll tell you what I really enjoyed. I I won't mention it. <laughs> I'm going to open up my column. I'm going to make you talk about it. No, no, no. The, the, the two things I want to talk about. One, we we talked about a novel uh, before the podcast, which I will not name. But it was a bad novel trying to do a good thing. Yes. But, but a bad novel stylistically, awkwardly, all kinds of things. And I found a habit which I did not know I was aware of. I was about a third of the way through this novel, and I was reading a really over-the-top sequence. And I thought, I need to read some really good prose. Yep. So I yep. went back, and I read uh, a forthcoming novella by Jeffrey Ford called Out of Body. And I realized, snob that I am, that if I – that needing to read good, clear, clean prose after reading 40 or 50 pages of something which is awkward is a little bit – it's like it's like using – to use a metaphor that you probably would understand. It's like using really good single malt scotch to get the taste of haggis out of your mouth. Um, something has – so I, I needed good prose. So I, I, re- I read the Jeffrey Ford thing, which is a yeah. supernatural thing. Out of body, thriller, yeah. Novella, out of body. Uh, went back and read another th- third or two thirds of this novel that, which don't, and, and listeners don't try to guess which one it is because it's not going to be in my column. And then I, I got two thirds of the, I, I needed to read some other good prose and I picked up a novel that I had no expectations of at all. Um, which a novel by Liz Williams called, um, Comet Weather. Yeah. 
it's just gorgeous. It's a beautifully written sort of English rural novel. It has magic in it. It has witches in it. It has time travel. It has Sir Francis Drake. It has stars that appear as sprites on your doorstep. It has four sisters and a missing mother. It's uh, just a lovely, lovely novel. And what made me turn to it was I wanted to get the taste out of my mouth of what I've been reading. (laughs) And sentence by sentence, it was just beautiful from the get-go. So Um, is Comet Weather by Liz Williams available from Yukon Press? Is that a Cood Street book you were going to overlook but don't for 2020? Um, for 2020, that's going on my list. So don't it's overlook this one. Thing. For it's, readers, it's, it's, listeners, do not overlook Common Do not overlook Liz Williams. Liz Williams. Liz Williams has not had a novel out in a long time. I think she had uh, maybe an unfortunate experience in the United States. She was really promoted by Nightshade Books when yeah, they were yeah, she was. Uh, at their height and has uh, not had as much impact as she might. I have not read all of her science fiction or earlier space opera stuff. This is the sort of thing that if you like, uh, I don't know, Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane or uh, Paul Cornell's Lich, Lich, Litchfield. The, the Litchford Lich, books, yeah, yeah. Litchford books, that sort of thing. Or for that matter, going back to some of Diana Wynne-Jones or going further back to, um, I don't know, Daphne du Maurier and Arthur Machen, all these people who wrote about mysterious goings-on in the English countryside. Yeah. Um, it's 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 done very very well, but the reason I found myself reading it was just because the prose was so clean. I've gotten to be a snob about clean prose. <laughs> it's possible to do it, folks. It's possible to write ordinary sentences. It's possible to have characters do things that uh, that don't sound like they're being prepped for CGI movies. <laughs> well, I can tell you that I read one book I can't talk on the podcast about, which was mm-hmm. fascinating. And then, for the first time, Gary, in maybe two years, I read a non-genre novel. Really? I know. A mystery novel. A, a crime novel. Recommended to crime me by yeah. friend of the podcast, James Bradley. Uh, it's a book called The Cold, Cold Ground by Adrian McKinty, which half mm-hmm. the people I know have heard of, but I hadn't heard of. Uh, set in Belfast in 1981. And it was fabulous and a joy to just read something different just for... The pleasure of it, you know. I intend to do that. I mean, I, I used to read crime fiction fairly regularly until the whip wielders at Locust started telling me I have to read all these books for Locust. But I used to love Carl Hyacinth stuff. Yeah. I used to love uh, fiction fiction that just seemed to me to be so absurd that it was it, it felt like science fiction. There's there's a, a there's an alliance between mystery and crime fiction and and, and fantastic fiction. That I've never understood, but there's a lot of overlap among readers. So basically, we want to say to you listeners, read widely, read what you love, but also read the Liz Williams book. Yeah, read the Liz Williams book because I don't know how much attention that sort of thing gets in the States. Yeah, Um, and also actually looking at your column for a second, which I did perhaps, mm -hmm. although this is blatantly advertising a book by a friend. Uh, not currently available in the United States, so you need to hop online to pre-order is Ghost Species by James Bradley, which you also seem to think was a rewarding book. Well, one of the things that James does, and we will talk, we should talk to him about this when the mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. comes. And I really hope this book becomes available in the States, even though I think maybe, okay, maybe we're parochial. This is a novel that takes place pretty much entirely in Tasmania, which. So? As, as, well, because most people in the United States thinks Tasmania is where a Warner Brothers cartoon character comes from. Can I that's ask you a question, though? I want to ask you a question. How come that's not true for crime fiction, but it is true for genre fiction? You said, that's a very good you, you said a crime novel in some esoteric place. Some, you know, like Alexander McCall Smith sets, you know, these novels in parts of, uh, Africa. Uh, Africa, I just yeah. read books in Belfast, whatever else. In, in fact, in crime fiction, that sense of place and whatever else is oh, a yeah, huge his, asset. Historically, uh, the guy in Marsh was how most Americans learned about New Zealand. What you're alluding to is the idea that it's not a good idea in science fiction. I don't know. I don't know why this novel, I mean, maybe it's going to be picked up. It's, um, it's a novel which clearly has as much relevance to people in the United States yeah. as it does to people in Tasmania. Um, but what I find interesting about it, and I found interesting about James's previous novel, Clade, 
is that he plays with genres. He he sort of gallops through three or four different genres um, in the same novel. And yeah. I'm pretty sure he knows he's doing this. But the beginning of this novel, it's very shrewd. Uh, and I will, I will give people a preview of what I actually say, said in the review. It begins like a Michael Crichton thriller. It begins <laughs> with all the unlikelihood. First of all, you've got these two brilliant geneticists who are the t- only two geneticists in the world who can do this job. And they happen to be a couple. That's unlikely. They're sent to this mysterious um, scientific research facility yep. in remote Tasmania, which is funded by this billionaire who is who, he's Bill Gates and he's Elon Musk and he's uh, Mark Zuckerberg all rolled into one. And they're going to be involved in this massive secret campaign to de-extinct species. This is not giving anything away because virtually the title of the novel gives that away. So you're in you, you you just see where it's going it's 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 well there's Pleistocene species So anyway anyway no we'll come back to it this oh, is we'll the end back, of the we'll podcast we're the now going to tell you you got to read Comet Weather you got to read Ghost Species and and you yeah. probably should look up if you're going to come to New Zealand Elizabeth Knox is the absolute book and absolute. with that Gary oh, okay this has been a regular fortnightly episode of the Code Street podcast Thank you.